This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Travis and Jody's love started off hot and heavy. Two people with a mutual attraction so strong that both lost sight of the faith that had eventually brought them together. No longer following one of the church's most sanctioned laws, chastity. Whether or not the sexual relationship started out with vaginal penetration or not was not the argument. They engaged in activities that were clear violations of the law. Without Travis here to tell the other side, we can only speculate and go off of the words that he emailed and texted to Jody Arias. Jody believed that with every mention of a holy marriage that Travis spoke of, there was no other woman in the world he thought capable of filling that position but her. She was going to have a happy marriage, a happy life, and sealed to one another for longer than their life here on earth. But the thing she failed to see is with every dirty word she muttered, every provocative photograph she sent, and every erotic activity that she engaged in, it only pushed Travis further away. She was his dirty little secret, and he planned on taking that secret to his grave. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of adult situations, murder, and adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. If you feel any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, all of my true crime nerds. I want to do a little bit of housekeeping before we get started. The April design of the month has come and gone, but don't worry, the May design of the month is now live, along with a whole new line that is becoming quickly my favorite design to hit the store since we've launched. Picking up the True Crime Librarian gear is a perfect way to support the show and get something in return. So after listening to tonight's episode, head over and check out the new line of merch. You can still head over to the website at the truecrimelibrarian.com and click that donate button if you feel inclined. And of course, another way to help out without a dime leaving your pocket is to review and recommend the show. Make sure to use the hashtag the true crime librarian so that I can see those reviews and recommendations. Last, let me give a huge welcome to all of my new true crime nerds that stumbled on the show last week. Thank you for giving the show a chance to make your podcast playlist. I cannot say thank you enough. That's enough of this. Let's get to what you all came here for, the true crime. Last week, I introduced you to both Travis and Jody and their lives before meeting one another. And the moment shortly after their introduction, Jody took a leap of faith literally by converting into Mormonism. She thought by doing so that she would be one step closer to possibly having a family with Travis as the head of the table. Those who knew Jody working with her or friends noticed that the conversation seemed to always steer back to the same topic after she had met Travis, and it was time for her input, she would just bring him back up. She even had moments when she would arrive at work, text Travis from the parking lot, and refuse to exit her car and go clock in for work until he texted her back 
so that she knew where he was and what he was doing before her shift started. We can look back at Jody's history. Go back. You know, uh, Bobby cheated on her. Matt cheated on her. Daryl, no, he never really cheated on her, but their their relationship didn't really ever go anywhere other than I would say their relationship was more of a friends with benefits kind of thing. They were roommates who they they bought a home together, but yet they still had separate bedrooms. They split everything down down the middle. This wasn't a relationship of 100%. It was all 50-50, but there was no cheating. Yet it still gave her trust issues, right? I mean, we can only we can only see set back and see all of that and how it happened. So for her to be doing these kind of things with Travis now, it's not necessarily an excuse for it, but you understand why, why this is starting to happen. Now, throughout the end of 2006, Travis and Jody were seeing each other as often as they could, still using the Hughes home as a halfway point, and Jody making the entire trip to Mesa at least once or twice during this time. In December, there was a PPL convention going on in Arizona, and Travis ended up inviting dozens of friends over, and some of them were going to stay at his house. He had more than enough room. I told you, this five-bedroom, three-bath home, plenty of room for, you know, a dozen people or so. They may, you know, litter the floor or sleep on the couch or in the den or whatever, but he had room. Well, when Jody caught wind of this, she called Travis up and said, hey, by the way, I'm attending the PPL convention in Arizona. And Travis told her, he's like, look, I don't really have any more room. All these people are staying with me. And Jody told him, you know what? It's no big deal. I'm just going to stay with some other friends, but I just wanted to let you know I was coming. Well, she ends up showing up on his doorstep the night before the, the convention. And he's having this little get together with all these people hanging out. And as she's going through and meeting all these people, she's telling everybody, I'm Travis's girlfriend. You know, I'm Jody. I'm Travis's girlfriend. She's putting a label to something that had yet to have a label. He hadn't asked her out. There was, they weren't dating. They were talking and, you know, having sex. But in the eyes of Travis, she wasn't his girlfriend. And so Travis would remind her that night a couple of times, you know, I don't have any more room for you. You know, you can't stay here. She's like, no, I know it's no big deal. And it kept going on. Well, Travis ends up going to bed eventually and he sleeps in his office as he handed over the master bedroom suite and his bed to two other girls that could sleep in there and feel confident and safe. Well, the ever persistent Jody, who, you know, was staying at a friend's house, curled up under the Christmas tree and went to bed. She never left his home. This was virtually the last spot in his house. He had to put anybody to sleep. And Jody was, she wasn't, you know, it didn't offend her that she had to sleep there. She'd go for it. Jody claimed that and it was okay. However, she says it's this event that when she kind of started noticing that Travis treated her different depending on who he was surrounded by. Strangers. He was loving and affectionate, and you could almost put, you know, the label of them being a couple. In front of his LDS members at home, he was distant. They were just friends. 
you know, don't, don't hug up on me. We, you know, you stay over there. I'm going to stay over here. We keep our distance. This is where Jody, who had thought they were being exclusive, learned that Travis was talking to other women. Again, he had not put a label on their relationship. He hadn't asked Jody to be his girlfriend. Jody just assumed, which we all know, assuming makes an ass out of you and me, that she was his girlfriend. Well, Travis is like, no, I, you know, I'm kind of talking to a couple other girls. And you need to be doing the same thing. You got to keep your options open, you know. Just get get out there and meet some people. Because, you know, we're talking, yes, but you're not the only person. Well, Jody ends up having a couple lunches with another man that she had met at another PPL convention. And she told him that she was just dabbling in Mormonism. We know she was baptized in the Mormon church which means she was a Mormon, right? She converted. But it depended on who Jody was talking to, depending on her level of activity within the church. At this point, Jody's ex-boyfriend and roommate, Daryl, who, you remember, she was staying in um, Palm Desert. They had a home together. Yeah, remember that? So at this point, their relationship had kind of ended Daryl knew that she was talking to somebody else. Jody's attention was completely somewhere else. She was no longer taking care of her responsibilities. Well, Daryl had found a place to live and a job up in Monterey, which is where his ex-wife, her new husband, and their son was going. So Daryl was going to follow. He wanted to be with his son. So he moved. This left Jody with this big-ass house with a mortgage that she couldn't afford. She barely could afford half. And now Daryl handed her the entire payment and all of the bills. Her first home was going to be lost to foreclosure at the end of 2006. There was no way around this for her. It was beyond her means. She was a waitress and she, don't get me wrong, this girl worked hard for what she had. And she had no reservations about having multiple jobs. So it just, it was not there. She was not a great salesman when it came to PPL. Her photography business was more of a side hustle. And even then it was a paid hobby. I would, you know what I'm saying? So she wasn't making a shit ton of money. Her half of the mortgage was $1,400. 2800 is really hard to come up with when you're struggling at 1400 a month. So she lost her home. Here's the thing. Jody never let that on to anybody, really. It, she didn't want, I don't, I don't know if she was embarrassed, which most people would if you're losing your house to foreclosure because you can't make the payment. It didn't matter. Jody went on in life acting like nothing was wrong. And she continued to go to the Hughes home and sometimes showing up unannounced to hang out with Skye, you know, because Skye was her best friend and Skye thought Jody might be a psychopath. Yeah. So the Hughes, the more time they end up spending with Jody, the more they start questioning her behavior, right? She says, at this point, you know, the the whole Christmas thing happened. She found out Travis is talking to other people. So she begins telling Chris and Skye about dating others as well. And when she would 
date someone, go to lunch, go to dinner, she would tell Travis that they had an obsession with her to the point that he became jealous of her dating anyone else. But Sky and Chris saw through that ruse. They saw that she was painting a more vibrant picture than probably what was going on, right? You know, they went to lunch and this person was probably like, mm, I'll call you. And he never calls. But to Jody, he's calling her every 20 minutes. He's texting her. He's emailing her. He's showing up, you know, very vibrant photograph of what's going on. And to the point that Travis is like, mm, maybe you shouldn't date other people. Maybe you shouldn't talk to other people. Well, Sky also noticed that at PPL conventions, Jody was more of the aggressor when it came to meeting men. She would flaunt over them. She would touch them. She would hang on them. And just, you know, anything she could do in the line of sight of Travis, might I add. Now, if Travis wasn't looking, maybe not. But if Travis was kind of paying attention to what Jody was doing and who she was talking to, she would be overly flirting with these people, right? She's trying to elicit that jealousy from Travis. And Sky and Chris are not the only ones seeing this side of Jody. Other members in the LDS community that knew Travis was seeing or talking to Jody, they begin to warn him. They're telling him, you know, she seems nice, but there's something off with her. Okay, you need to watch, watch it. And and Travis is like, She's just a really nice person. She's very sociable. You know, she's not, she's not crazy. She's not dangerous. She's just high strung, right? Well, in 2007, Sky had had it with Jody. She had had it with her coming over unannounced. She had had it with these you know, graphic details of why Travis won't commit to her. Why won't he ask me to move to Mesa? Why won't he, you know, ask me to be his girlfriend? We're talking some junior high level bullshit, right? So Sky's done. And she she knows Travis. She knows he's kind of a womanizer. And Chris does too. He's not stupid to what he sees Travis do. They're friends. They're very close friends. So in order to get Jody to stop whining, Chris and Sky, they go to Travis and they set him down and they almost reprimand him for leading Jody on, right? You know, you can't can't put these kind of things out there with Jody and not give her a commitment. It's clear to the Hughes that Jody and Travis weren't really right for each other. And what they were doing is basically you know, if you're not serious about Jody, you need to tell her and just let it go. That's the direction they wanted Travis to go. But I think the way Travis kind of took it was, I need to give her a commitment if I'm going to give her an honest shot, right? So we see Sky kind of going up to bat for Jody. At least that's what she's trying to show Jody she is doing. But then Jody goes and does something really dumb. She produces an email from a stalker, air quotes, saying that Jody was unprotected and Travis being so far away and he doesn't need, he doesn't deserve a woman 
like Jody. Well, this is what Jody tells Travis. Well, Travis goes to Sky and Chris and and he's honestly, he's concerned. He's like, Jody got this email and I'm a little worried about her safety. I'm a little worried about who this person is, yada, 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 right? Sky laughs out loud in front of Travis and she's like, Travis, you're a dumbass. Jody wrote that email as a way to force you to committing to her. But Travis is like, no, this is serious. Come on. You have to believe me. this isn't, you know, she's not this crazy, right? Yeah. Okay. In February of 2007, Jody grows this wild hair and she takes off to Mesa, Arizona one night after getting off from work. It's not a short drive just know this. And she pulls up to Travis's house about 2 a.m. And she sat in her car and she had a second thought for half a second. She's like, mm, this, this may not have been my best idea until she sees this blue light coming from a bedroom upstairs. And she knows at this point, Travis is home. So she crawls out of her car. She knocks on the door. And when Travis answers, he has a big ass smile on his face and she knows she did right. And these two, they spent a couple days blissfully together, you know, sex and whatever else. But Jody's ways, they got the best of her one afternoon after Travis left her unattended with his laptop. A few back clicks on the web browser and she's in his MySpace account. MySpace is the Facebook of the earlier 2000s, right? She claims that on his MySpace account, she found several messages exchanged between Travis and a married woman within his church. Now, what she does with that information, it's not clear. She obviously doesn't take it to the church because you and I both know there's probably no validity to this, but whatever, we're going to go with it. If she did find something, I would say it's probably something that was an exchange between Travis and another girl who was single because I don't see him being like, I don't see him taking his sexual actions as far as seducing a married woman, right? I don't. I mean, he's a dirty little freak, but maybe not that. He's, he may not be that brave. So I, it's probably some email exchange or some direct message exchange between Travis and another girl. And this just further shows to Jody he he's not committed to her. And so later when she recounts this information, let me go ahead and paint it as a married woman in his church. That's even worse. This is really going to make him look bad, right? So as we're going back and looking at this, we don't have Travis here to be like, it wasn't a married woman. It was you know, Susie Joe from the single side, right? We don't know. By the end of February, Jody finally gets what she wanted from Travis, a commitment, and the two are officially a couple. So in March of 2007, the Hughes watched as this girl went from being peculiar to, to questionably scary. Chris and Skye were to the point that they needed to sit Travis down and, and tell him what they have started noticing with Jody. 
So then there's a night where Travis and Jody meet up at the Hughes house. And after Jody goes to bed, Travis, Sky, and Chris are like, we need to talk. Well, earlier that afternoon, Sky had texted Chris and, and said she had had enough of Jody and she needed somebody to get her away from her. Well, Travis saw that and he's asking, you know, he asked why. And this is what leads to this conversation. They go into the master bedroom after Jody goes into her bedroom to go to bed. They sit him down and they start telling him about her weird behavior, about the unannounced visits that are occurring frequently now. She's been caught reading his email either by Chris or by Sky or by the both of them. They notice that if he goes and gets on the phone, she's not far behind eavesdropping in on his conversation and the level of manipulation like with the email saying she was being stalked it only pressured travis into giving her a commitment right so they're telling travis all of this and he's believe you know he's refusing to believe this he's like no she's just she's a nice person this is not who she is and sky hears a door creak from down the hall and she's sitting there and then in the next instant she explains this cold shiver that runs down her spine something is off right and she changes the conversation super quick and then all of a sudden there's a knock on the door well it's jody and she's asking are you going to bed and, and travis tells her no i'm gonna stay up and i'm gonna talk to them i'll come tell you goodnight when i go to bed and so jody takes that at face value for now turns around walks off goes to her bedroom well they sit down and continue their conversation a little bit later, that same cold shiver, just like the blood drains from you. Sky mouths to Travis, she's at the door. She, not, she doesn't say this. She doesn't vocally say this out loud. This is an interpretation of him reading her mouth and she's, you know, telling him she's at the door. And Travis is like, bull crap. So he gets up, softly pads over to the to the master bedroom door and then he opens it real quick and Jody's standing right there and this is where she gets even more concerned with the conversation that they are having and, and she's a little spooked because Travis caught her and she wants to know what's going on what what's going on what's the matter Travis is like it's nothing go to bed I'll I'll come tell you good night later it's at this point that both Sky and Chris come to the conclusion that the fear they have of Jody and her and the suspicions that they're starting to develop could put their family in danger and none of it would really come to a head none of it, you wouldn't really understand the danger they felt till a year and a half later but that night they decided Jody's not allowed back at our house. Y'all are not allowed to come here and meet up. Not here, not with our kids. We have to put their safety first. And we don't want whatever shit that's going to hit the fan to come and land at the foot of our family. So that was the last time that Jody and Travis met at Chris and Sky's house. Jody eventually quit showing up unannounced as she. That night, probably picked up on the fact that Sky and Chris were both trying to talk Travis out of dating her. People like that are 
fairly quick to pick up on those kind of things. Uh, they don't, they don't take kindly to someone trying to push a wedge between them and whatever it is they want. And that, that friendship that she claimed that she and Sky had, it was dead in the water. No more. Later that March, Travis and Jody they go to another convention. And this is something that is going to put their romance, their relationship to the test. You know, they have a thousand mile drive to Oklahoma City where the new PPL convention is being held. And it will determine whether or not there's something, there's a connection between them, they have something in common, or if they end up completely hating each other's guts by the time they get there, right? Well, during this trip, Travis has a moment where something speaks to him, a country song that that stands out. And he's he's, you know, been quoted as saying he hates country music. And the message was to live each day like it his was his last. You all remember, most of you probably know, Tim McGraw's Live Like You Were Dying. This song came on the radio. And it was a, a moment of clarity for Travis. He was living as a way of, I will eventually get to this point, right? Well, if I'm living for tomorrow and I'm not living for today, then I'm not doing the very best I can do, right? I mean, that's the way he's kind of deducing this. So he decides... He's going to live life to the fullest every single day. And this is also around the same time they pick up this book called A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, A Traveler's Life List. And this becomes what the couple refers to as the list. They, they check mark places off the list. This is the list they're referring to. They pick this up and they decide, you know, all these sacred ruins, all these grand hotels, all these wildlife preserves, hilltop villages, castles, hidden islands, museum. It's virtually endless. They want to go see all of these places and they want to do so together. Of course, they add in a few of the Mormon sites so that they can see how the faith that is currently guide them, guiding them came to be. So they have a mixed version. And this Oklahoma City trip turned into something more. Their relationship withstood the distance. They had a great time there. On the way there, they had a great time back. They developed this goal to do together. It looked like they had a very healthy, a healthy foundation to their relationship. Well, with the two being official and the two developing this goal that was going to be more than a day or two or a week or two, this was going to be a lifelong goal from them. So Jody's infatuation turned into something more. She, she says she was falling in love with Travis early on. And I, I don't, I'm not going to say that's what it was. I'm not Jody. I haven't spoken to the woman. I don't know. I'm going to say she believed it was love, but I want to say it was probably an obsession, an infatuation that just was out of control, that was driven by lust because these two were, you know, they were not abstaining from sex. 
whether it was with penetration or not, the, these two were doing things that in the, the eyes of the church would have put both of them on probation and possibly causing Travis to lose his recommended temple again for the same crap, right? So is it love? Well, I can't deduce that. I mean, for everybody, love means something different, right? She was telling others she couldn't see anybody else being her husband other than Travis. That was it. He was he was her end. He was her beginning to the end. He was her everything, right? She, I mean, she's like, I'm be his wife the entire time we're on earth. And because we'll be sealed in the church, we'll have eternity together. This was no longer a dream. She now had a determination that this is what she was going to have, even if Travis was not seeing it quite yet. Travis liked Jody, don't get me wrong, but his feelings and her feelings, two totally different. They're not even on the same planet. Two totally different things. Most that knew who Jody was within Travis's PPL group of friends, those, they knew this was a couple. They knew these two were hot and heavy, right? But those two who were a part of Travis's LDS life, they really didn't know Jody, and they really did not realize that they were actually a couple who were actively dating, okay? So this goes back to Jody realizing that Travis treats her one way depending on the group of people he's surrounded by. But Jody, she makes no qualms. She makes sure that everyone knows she is Travis's girl. This kind of possessive behavior was another factor in why Travis's feelings were not going in the same direction as Jody's. He didn't like the jealousy. He didn't like this possessiveness, her need to, to stake a claim to be like a dog who goes around and just marks his territory. He didn't like that. This is not how he was raised. This is not okay within the church. You know, these are, these are big no-nos. And then on top of that, she's giving in to temptation with Travis every time. She's not pure. Eventually, whether or not he sees himself as pure, he's going to want somebody pure. And she's his three-hold wonder. She's not pure by any means. As Travis gets closer to his 30th birthday, he starts to realize that most of those within his church life, most of those who are part of the LDS church, these people, they're already married. They're already having children. They're already enjoying their life. And Travis is still playing the field. And without the thought of really being tied down, he didn't, he didn't understand. He didn't, didn't click for him. But as he's, you know, getting closer to this milestone, he realizes, I have some things I should have checked off by now. I, I should have found a, a suitable companion. We should be in the process of at least starting our family. And here I am with a girlfriend that I'm not entirely sure I even want to continue dating. It's starting to become this trickle effect, right? He, he realizes, I got to get my shit together. Well, 
I don't see Jody being part of that plan. So the next thing trickles down and his feelings, that lust, that, that intensity that they had at the beginning, oh, it's starting to die down into a small smolder, right? It's not really burning. It's just putting off a little bit of smoke. It's starting to fade. And, and, and Jody, I think she starts to realize that he's pulling away. And her claws weren't in him deep enough just yet to keep him from doing so. And so within the church, Travis starts to have an eye on a few of the single women. And none of them are Jody. None. Let's just go ahead and mark that. Travis never, ever considered Jody as a, a suitable companion. Now, someone moral, Mormon, someone spiritual, someone worthy, and most importantly, pure are the things that Travis decided he needed to have in order to have a celestial marriage, which is a sealed marriage within the church, which it says that these two people have come together in matrimony on earth as husband and wife, and they will continue in heaven for all of eternity as husband and wife. That is a end goal for all Mormons. They want to find a family that, that will continue on even after they leave this world. Well, Travis believed that he and Jody were so different that he did not think he would be able to have get the church to seal that marriage. That's that's another one. You know, what's the point of having her be his wife if that's not who he's going to spend eternity with. He wants someone to love. He wants someone to walk hand in hand with in his faith. And and when time comes, he wants somebody there by his side for all eternity. Jody's not it. He does not see the church sealing that. So he's done. In June of 2007, Travis, he's starting to realize... This is the end of this relationship with Jody. We've we've hit the the finish line. Her possessiveness, it's starting to turn him off. The things that they're doing behind closed doors was going against his faith. And even as they were traveling and checking off these locations and still having this goal that they created together, those I mean they weren't are we all, we don't have these rose-colored glasses on, right? We realize what they're doing in these hotel rooms as they travel. It's not something you want to go home and tell your mother about, right? Okay, so we're seeing all of this, and it as Travis is dealing with this internal struggle, I mean, yes, at the time when it's going on, he's totally thinking with his dick, Right? His head and his heart, they don't even have a chance to try to talk some sense into him. But as he can get away from Jody, then his head and his heart are like, hey, we got to get our crap together. I mean, we're not getting any younger. And even Jody is starting to see 
Travis Poole. And she's that gut feeling that she had when Bobby cheated, when Matt cheated, it's starting to come back. And during a trip to Utah where they went to go visit some friends, she felt like something was up and she took hold of an opportunity. Travis got up to go take a nap and he left his phone. Well, what do you think, Tra what do you think Jody did? Yeah, she read, she read the messages between Travis and other women. Something he says was always platonic. Like he, he was one of those guys that are like, I have girlfriends, but they're not my girlfriends. I'm not, you know, seeking romantic relationships with him. While she's going through the messages, these are not plutonic conversations. They're very flirty messages. They're very, let's, you know, meet up and hang out. Something a man who's in a relationship should not be doing. Jody holds on to this. She doesn't confront him with this. Why? Because they have a two-week trip coming up and they are planning to check off multiple points from their list. And it begins June 18th of 2007. They travel to New York and they go and see Niagara Falls, Finger Lakes, Sacred Grove. This is part of their Mormon part of the list because this is the place where Joseph Smith had his first vision that led him to the Golden Plates and just snowballed into what is known as the Mormon faith. Well, after New York, they go to Ohio. They visit the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Then they fly out to Huntington Beach, California. This is a trip that Jody had earned through the PPL. These multi-level marketing uh, companies, they set goals for their, for their sellers. And once they hit a goal, they earned something. And a lot of them give away like a five-day trip to a resort or, you know, Cancun or whatever. A lot of them do that for the person selling plus one. We heard about this with Shanann Watts and Chris Watts. Well, Jody's earned her first trip. So they fly out of Ohio into Huntington Beach and they enjoy an entire week soaking up the sun in the resort. And Travis asked Jody a couple times during this point, you know, what, are you okay? What's going on? And Jody's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. In her head, she's dealing with what she knows, what she found out in Utah. It's starting to show in her actions and in the way she carries conversations. And it's just, you know, you've seen it. When somebody is having an internal struggle and it starts to come out through the way they talk, the way they act, you know it. Well, Travis knew something was up. Jody, she sees the end of the relationship. Even she is saying, I think we're done. They end this two-week journey in Anaheim at Disney, and Jody knows she needs to say something, but she's having a really hard time bringing herself to look in the eyes of Travis and look in the face of the man that she thought was going to be her husband, who was going to give her the happy life, the happy marriage, the children, the eternal family, right? She's, she can't tell him that it's over and neither can he. Once they are back home and she's in Palm Desert and he's in Mesa, Jody finally confesses that she went through his messages and saw what he has been saying to other women. And she even admits to one point during the trip, 
Travis was taking a shower or sleeping or something, a girl texted him and said something along the lines of how much she missed him. Well, Jody, being petty, texts back, cuddle time with Jody, and then turns his phone off after she deletes the message. Well, she, she you know, she admits being petty. And for the both of them, I mean, she can't trust Travis to keep it in his pants. I mean, just that's the saying, not necessarily he is going out and having sexual relationships with other women, but she can't trust him to be faithful, right? To be committed. And he can't trust her to not constantly go through his shit. He can't have anything personal. He can't trust that in her. And so with it broken for the both of them, June 29th of 2007, Travis and Jody end their relationship. Jody's crushed. She really wanted to be Travis's wife more than anything. And for Travis, he was nothing but relieved. He didn't have to pretend that his relationship with Jody was going to go anywhere. And he was free to find someone that he could spend the rest of his life with. In July of 2007, Travis, he didn't take long to mourn the loss of Jody. He was too busy securing a date with a girl from the single ward. Her name was Lisa Andrews, and she was 19. She was almost 11 years his junior. Now, Travis, he'd, he kind of knew Lisa before with outings and stuff with the church, and he teased and flirted with the girl, but this was before he and Jody had ended their relationship, and their first meeting had occurred while he, she was dating someone else. But by the time Jody and Travis ended their relationship, Lisa was also single, and she jumped at the chance to date Travis. They were friends before, and they had developed a repertoire between each other. And by the time they were both free, there were feelings that had already started developing there. So where Travis was generally quick to engage in sexual activities with other women he had dated in the past, especially with Jody, with Lisa, he was determined to remain chaste. The two never have a sexual relationship, according to Lisa later during the trial. Now, as Jody and Travis had broken up, they had not completely quitted each other. And this is how Travis was able to remain abstinence with Lisa. And that's because in the background, he and Jody, they are sexting. They are having phone sex. They're masturbating to one another. And I want to say they even meet up a couple times and Jody, you know, spreads her legs. Jody claims that the day after they broke up, Travis calls her and, and he's begging for another chance with her. And let, let's just be honest, this is possibly true. Okay. So let's get to why I think this part is true. When, if things end with Jody completely, like they sever all communication, all ties, Travis doesn't have an easy lay, right? So he's, he's been with Jody for, you know, quite some time. September would have been a year. So just, just shy of a year. And they've pretty much been sexual 
since the first week they met. So if he loses that, there's nobody there to fulfill that position and fulfill his sexual needs. He doesn't want to do this with Lisa. He doesn't want to pressure her into that. He wants her to remain pure. He wants her to remain strong in her faith. You know, this is what he needs to have a suitable companion. So if he can kind of dangle himself in front of Jody, he can get sex out of her whenever he wants, right? I mean, this is the this is black and white, right? And in the meantime, he doesn't have to pressure Lisa into doing something she doesn't want to. And she remains the perfect Mormon wife. And, well, Jody's the three-hold wonder he likes to keep his dirty little secret. He has this almost Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not speaking ill uh, of Travis. But let's be honest. In 2008, the confides uh, of being completely a virgin when you marry, it's out the window. At this point, we're seeing people have multiple children with multiple different people. Divorce is not a dirty secret like it was in the 1950s. I mean, society has changed and, and being a sexual being has become extremely welcomed. We're no longer hiding behind curtains and going to church on Sunday and be like, oh, I would never. But Monday through Saturday, you know, you have no clothing on and your legs never, your knees never touch. Okay, so let's just, no, that's not, I am not painting him in the bad light. I am simply saying he was part of a society where we don't condemn you for being sexual. So if he can keep his booty call on the side, which is Jody, he can maintain the perfect spiritual relationship with Lisa and Jody, she she says, you know, these feelings never went away because they never had that severance. And the more she, the more they talked, the more they had phone sex, the more they sexted each other, the more they exchanged dirty photos and whatever else, her feelings continued to grow. And it only caused her to become more and more unstable. Because she never loses sight of, of Travis never being, I mean, that possibility is not completely gone. It's still there. And according to her, he, quote, had potential to change, end quote. So they just had hit a bump in Jody's eyes, right? Mm -mm. Two weeks after breaking up with Travis, the sweet, innocent Jody makes a decision that she's moving to Mesa, Arizona. Yes, this bitch is that crazy. <laughs> Jody said that Travis strongly encouraged the move. And those closest to Travis, they say he was completely, completely against her moving here. I mean, and, and let's just, let's just look at the, the statistics here. Jody grew up in California. 
she grew up in Wairika. She she lived in um oh crap. She lived in Palm Desert with Daryl. She lived in Oregon. She has no ties to Mesa, Arizona, except for Travis and maybe a couple of people she's met through PPL, but her main connection, it's Travis, right? So there's really nothing there for her. Travis is seeing this like crazy stalker chick coming his way. He may not have labeled her as crazy and stalker just yet, but we don't know for sure whether or not he objected to the move because Travis isn't here to tell us his side of the story. Those closest to Travis said, mm, no, he didn't like this at all. But in the end, Jody didn't give a shit. She packed crap and she moved from California to Arizona. So she could probably keep a closer eye on Travis. Let's just be honest. They're not dating. So if she texts him and asks him what he's doing, he there's no obligation from his end to text her back and tell her, right? So if I live in Mesa, I cut out the need for him to tell me what's going on. And I can find out on my own. Well, Travis's friend Mike call, recalls overhearing Travis with Jody in a conversation prior to the move. And he says that Travis told her, quote, you have no reason to be in Mesa. You have no friends here. It didn't work with us. I don't want you that close to me, end quote. Jody doesn't listen. She don't care. So Mike sits Travis down and he's like, dude, you need to watch your back. That's some crazy stalker stuff. A normal person would not do that. And he's true. How many of you have had a relationship that you thought was going to lead to marriage? And in the end, it, it led to heartbreak and y'all went your separate ways. Did you honestly think that moving, you know, next door was going to be the best idea? Nine times out of ten, if we break up with somebody, we want distance. Well, Jody. She doesn't see it that way. Late in July of 2007, Jody packs up and she relocates to Mesa. She had planned on renting a room in a home owned by a Mormon woman that she knew. But when those plans fell through, she ended up having to rent a room through a person she had never met before. And the only way she found her was on a Mormon housing website. And this new home, four miles. 10 minute drive from Travis. And this is where Travis gets a little freaked out. Something Jody later admits to detectives, you know, apparently Travis was very vocal about how freaked out he was about Jody living this close to him. There was no qualms there. He said what he had to say, but it didn't matter. She did it anyways, but she did give a little consideration and in the area that they were in, the way I take the Mormon church, and, and you live in an area, you go to a specific temple, okay? But for Jody, she was able to attend a different ward or a different district kind of thing. I don't know. If any of you are Mormon, please clarify that for me. Leave it in the comments on my YouTube channel 
or on Instagram or on Facebook, clarify how that really works. Because the way it's made to seem is they were within the same word, but Jody chose to go to somewhere different in order to make Travis more comfortable. Soon she finds work. She's a waitress at a place called Mimi's Cafe, and she also lands a job at P.F. Chang's restaurant, along with selling PPL. Now, again, she's not the best salesman, so she's not making buku bucks. She did find enough time to register her photography business in Mesa. She booked a couple jobs, but let's be honest, business was slow, and it didn't help Jody. She continued to struggle financially. Well, Travis had a little bit of a bleeding heart and he told Jody, you know, come clean my house twice a week and I'm going to pay you $200. But oh, by the way, while you're cleaning, you have to wear this. And it is the skimpiest little maid outfit I think he could have found. So Jody's cleaning her ex-boyfriend's house for money. She's waitressing at two different positions. She's selling PPL through the same company that her ex is selling PPL through. She has a photography business, but she's good at it. She's just not putting in the effort. Well, this leads to Jody and Travis developing what we will outline as a routine. Late at night, Travis would send her the phrase, I'm getting sleepy. This was code for Jody to come to his house. It's a 10-minute drive. Slip in. Travis rarely locks his doors. She's careful not to disturb the roommates or wake anybody else up in the home. Sneaks into his room. Strips out of her clothing. Crawls into bed. Wakes him up if he did actually go to sleep by kissing on him. And the two would engage in sex. When this wasn't possible... She would text him very raunchy text messages, which led to the two masturbating to one another and and doing what's called sexting. You know, to each their own. Whatever. On July 28th of 2007, Jody baked uh, Travis this square cake with chocolate frosting, and she wrote out on it, Happy Birthday, T-Dog. This was Travis's nickname. And she lit green candles. Green was his favorite color. And she posted a picture of it all to his MySpace page, celebrating and wishing him a happy 30th birthday. This would be Travis's last birthday he would celebrate. As time went on with Jody in Mesa, Travis became very weary of her and their fights escalated. Travis would use extremely harsh words and he was just trying to hurt her. And had she had she had half the common sense of a normal person, these should have pushed her away. Let's be honest. He wasn't, he didn't use the best language. You know, she was crazy. Mm, he wished he never met her. She was a slut. She was a whore. If you can think of it, he probably said it. And I'm, you know, sometimes. You have to use the strongest language to make your point. Some people just don't get it. They're not the brightest crown in the the Crayola box, right? Well, we might have found one. One of them very gray, dull ones. Well, as time went on with Jody, and he and they're fighting, and he's growing tired 
of her constantly hacking into his social media, which she has begun to do. She He's tired of her going through his phone, which if he leaves that phone laying anywhere and she's within distance, she's going to snag it. She He's tired of her reading his emails. All of these things she did purposefully for two reasons. She wants to know exactly what's going on with Travis and any other woman in his life. And this will lick some sort of emotion from Travis to be directed towards her. She doesn't care that he's mad and angry. He's focused on her. And in her eyes, this is a good thing. Most people, the more times you're angry at another, the less you're compatible for any kind of romantic relationship. But, you know, maybe we're doing this wrong, people. Or maybe we just don't want to spend life in jail. (laughs) Yeah. Tomato, tomato. This vicious cycle of fighting and making up and then screwing, it's, it's never ending with these two. And with each time they fight, these escalate and so do their sexual activities. And Jody, she likes to call them animalistic. Oh, Lord have mercy. I've seen a couple graphic details of what these two would do and... Let's just say that if it was occurring in 2021, they'd give Pornhub a run for their money. Jody was Travis's Achilles heel. He was torn between the sexual relationship he and her were having in secret. And since he'd already been on probation and lost recommend twice for having and doing these things, he really didn't want to say anything about their indiscretions. And, you know, like I said before, he he's letting his dick make the decisions. And Jody, being the three-hole wonder that she is, you know, how do you say no to somebody who's willing, right? Jody's struggling with her relationship with Travis just as much. Because when he was loving and affectionate to her, he was the perfect man in her eyes. But when they were fighting, she struggled hard with depression. So she wasn't, you know, completely um, invincible to, to the harsh words that he would say to her. She struggled really hard and these cut really deep for her emotionally. And Jody was always one to journal. And she talked heavily during these times about her depression and talk of suicide would occur during these writings, especially if it was a brief thought that she and Travis would never be a a husband and wife. They would never be companions. Her level of depression and inkling towards suicide would get worse. Even though they had their breakup, the two were still traveling and checking off places of their list together. Even while Travis is dating Lisa, he took Jody. This is probably something that helped Jody keep feeling like there was still hope between them. This is also something that, um, plays a major role in into what happens between the two 
In the summer of 2007, some of the trips they took was with a couple of friends of Travis's, Dan and his sister named Desiree. And through these trips, they began, Jody and Dan became friends. And there were, I mean, it was to the point that Jody was going over to his home and having Sunday dinner with his family. And in front of Dan and Desiree, Travis and Jody acted like a couple. And this led Dan and Desiree to believe they really enjoyed each other's company. But there is a photo of Jody and Travis. And oh, Lord, have mercy. Let me see how you pronounce this. Hold on one second, peoples. Where there's a photo of Jody and Travis at Havasupai Waterfalls, and Jody's sitting in Travis' lap as the water is falling down on him, and she's got her baseball cap on, and they're both looking at the camera, and Jody is she's lit up with her smile. She's she's genuinely happy sitting there in Travis's lap. But when you look at Travis, just at the corners of his mouth are kind of barely turned up in a little bit of a smile, but it's a definitely forced smile. And just his body language, the way he's he is positioned in this photograph, you can tell he's completely uncomfortable with Jody being in his lap and being that close. It almost looks as though Jody is holding his head in the direction of the camera. It is an awkward photo to look at. Even, even if you went out and saw photos before this and, and really didn't know any details to this crime, if you saw that, you saw that there was a level of awkwardness there. It's just, it just goes to show you how far these two were being pushed apart and how, how long Jody's reach really was. The more Travis traveled with Jody and the two would spend time continuing to have sex, the more his business began to suffer. He wasn't putting in the time he used to with PPL. Therefore, he was not being as successful as he used to. And and then the beginning when Travis really found his niche and trying and selling, you know, the prepaid legal services, he wouldn't have to put very many hours of the day into work to make a day's income be, you know, hell of a lot more than what most of us make. So he's not putting in the time and he's traveling, trying to check off all these different points. And he's kind of covering Jody's portion of the the trip. So he's purging money. I mean, it's his savings has depleted quickly. And, you know, the other problem was this exotic blonde he's screwing. He never could seem to say no to. And he's trying to build this, this foundation in a relationship with Lisa. This is all a disaster coming together, right? I mean, this is the perfect storm just brewing. And Jody, she's selfish, taking as much time of Travis's time as she can. And it doesn't matter if that means he digs himself in a hole financially. It doesn't matter if it ends the relationship between Travis and Lisa. All that matters is he is with her. Well, when Lisa's around the house, 
remember Jody's still cleaning the home and she's hanging out with Travis at his house. She notices Jody's there around majority of the time and her consistent, her constant, her constant presence really made Lisa uncomfortable even though Travis would tell her time and time again, you know, we're just friends. But it, I mean, you didn't have to look at the two of them and go, y'all are just friends. You'd look at the two of them and you would probably go, there's something more going on here. And for Lisa to be, I don't know if they ever labeled each other, but for her to, to mean it by definition, be his girlfriend you can pick up on the fact that the girl that's standing there is probably doing things she shouldn't be with your boyfriend, right? So, there comes this time, according to Jody. She gets off work after her shift at P.F. Chang's, and she decides she's going to take some of the food that was left over to Travis's roommates, which I'm calling bullshit on, just FYI. And she says when she walked into the house... There was Travis with Lisa, and they were looking very cozy. She says she turned around, she walked out the door, climbed in her car, and took off. Well, supposedly, Travis climbs in his car, chases her down, and he's like, hey, you know, Lisa's just a friend. I don't know what you're getting all worked up over, but there's nothing going on there. And I'm not sure if I believe Jody on this. Jody seemed to only, ha only be at Travis's when Travis was there. And for her to be like, oh, I'm going to go and take his roommate some food because I'm feeling generous, I don't see it. I don't see it happening without an alternative motive being there. Does that make sense? So, I, bullshit. I mean, call it as you see it, right? And I would be willing to bet that if she did do this, if she, if she really was going over there with the intention to give his roommates this food, this was calculated on Jody's part. She wanted to see what Travis was doing and who he was, he was hanging out with. Does that make So I say it's either complete and total bullshit or this was calculated so that Jody could further keep an eye out on what Travis was doing. On another night, again, a moment that Jody tells us later, she says that she went over to Travis's to retrieve a box of her stuff that he was storing for her, and she tried to enter through the side door, which a lot of people have, have noted that if Travis was home, his doors were probably unlocked. But this time, when she went to go in through the side door, the door was locked. So she decides she's going to go around the back, go in through the patio door. So she goes through the backyard. And just as she's about to open the patio door, she sees there's a couple on the couch and they're kissing. Well, then it looks like the girl is trying to rehook her bra and the man, he stands up and he's wiping his mouth off. And it's at that point she realizes it's Travis. And Jody says that she took off before he could see her. Is it true? Probably not. I'm willing to bet that... Jody was there to spy. Okay. You know, could it possibly be true? Sure. I don't see that Lisa and Travis were not having makeout sessions. I don't, I'm not really sure of the level of 
you know, what that stands as far as the law of chastity goes. But if they were just kissing, I see that as very innocent. As long as there wasn't any groping or petting. I mean, that is very well defined in the law of chastity. You're not supposed to do those kinds of things. Don't touch the no-no parts, right? Okay. So is it possible that these two were on the couch and kissing? Yeah. But Lisa was very adamant after the fact and during the trial that she and Travis abstained from any sexual activity. And so I would say this seems more of a colorful painting again on Jody's part. I don't think she was rehooking her ball. She may have been scratching her back or Jody could just be lying. I mean, probably lying because this girl lies a crap ton during this case. Being in Mesa, it really allowed Jody an opportunity just to go over to Travis's anytime she thought he was, quote, stepping out on her. Yeah, we're going to go use that phrase. Her infatuation, it's obsession, it's unhealthy in every aspect. Where everyone is telling Travis that he needs to watch his back, he refuses to see what Jody really is at face value, okay? And what she's capable of doing. The, the more we go through the story, the, especially after they dated, you can see Jody and her mentality really start to darken and change. And, and you can't help but be extremely weary of all of her actions. I mean, you've, you're, she makes you stand off, okay? Hindsight's always twenty twenty. But if you are a person that is listening to this case for the first time, which is highly, highly hard to do in today's time with podcasts and documentaries. Oh, and the fact that this thing was freaking in front of you every day for three months, four months. The trial was like four and a half months long, okay? Longest damn trial ever. You know Jody and Travis's case. This is a rite of passage as being a true crime podcast. We're going to cover it. And... um. I want to dive and find those details you didn't find out it, during the trial. That's just who I am. So hindsight is twenty twenty, but if you are one of those people who don't know what this case is, you can already see these giant warning flags with neon flashing lights going up. Right? Don't have to. Be, I mean, you'd have to be probably a vegetable to not see this. So Jody, she continues to go behind Travis's back to find out more information that he, you know, is not willingly offering her. He's breaking, she's breaking into everything. Any kind of personal, anything, she's hacking her way through his social media, his emails. And if she finds things in his social media, direct messages in his emails, even his text messages, she forwards that shit to herself and then deletes the evidence. Every once in a while, Travis does catch her. Um, but all of this is, is what she needs to prove that Travis is cheating on her. Well, honey, hate to tell you, you're the other woman. You're not the, the main woman. His roommates can recall seeing that Travis would have his LDS girlfriend over during the day. But at night, if they were awake when the I'm feeling sleepy code word thing comes through, there's Jody. So they both, they knew Travis had a double life going on, but they didn't call him out for it. In September, on the 23rd of September, 2007, Lisa emails Travis about her concerns with their relationship and most importantly with Jody. Travis swore, you know, 
he would make it up to her, even though Lisa was having a hard time trusting him at this point. She ends up giving him the benefit of the doubt. Travis ends up talking her into, you know, just trust me. Okay. This is, it's not what you think it is. Although it really kind of is. October of 2007, Jody and Travis go to New Mexico for the, for Albuquerque's annual hot air balloon festival. This is something that Travis really wanted to do from the beginning of their list. And it's just, it seems like when it came to that list, Travis was tried and true. Jody goes, this is our list. This is something we came together and we decided we are going to do together. And he, so he held that commitment. The two are at this. You can look up, you can find the damn pictures. They, Jody photographed everything. Um, they're cheek to cheek and there's a rainbow hot air balloon in the background starting to blow up. It doesn't look comfortable. Travis doesn't look great. Doesn't, man, looks awkward again. He has a smile, but in his eyes, you're, you could see like, please stop touching me. <laughs> well, late fall of 2007, strange things are starting to happen. Travis's personal journals, where I told you that, that um, Jody liked to journal, Travis did too. And those personal journals begin missing, right? Well, at one point he was in a relationship that went on and he had faith in enough that he bought an engagement ring. Well, that person became an ex. He held on to the ring. This ring went missing. I wonder who it could be. On another occasion, he arrived home, unlocked his front door, and guess who he found inside? Jody Arias. How'd she get the hell in there, right? Doggy door. This girl squeezed herself through a doggy door and broke into his home. Later in 2007, Travis was with Lisa at her house. And this is where things really get strange and, and a little terrifying. They're upstairs from what I can gather. And they hear a beeping coming from outside. Travis, his curiosity perks up. Well, this beeping is followed by the alarm chirping that says somebody had opened the front door. So Travis and Lisa, they go down the stairs to see what's going on, and there's nothing there. Lisa asked Travis to stay over that night because it really kind of spooked her, and Travis agreed, but he and her did not share a bedroom. On December 6th of 2007, Travis was at Lisa's house again, and they had a knock on the front door. Well, when they opened the door, there's nobody there. So at first, you know, you're thinking the kids are running through the neighborhood doing ding-dong ditch, right? Travis ends up falling asleep with Lisa after they had watched a movie, and the next morning when he got up and goes out to his BMW, all four tires were slashed. He calls the insurance company, and here's the thing most, of, most people don't know, if all four of your tires are slashed, nine times out of ten, they're going to replace all four tires. He gets them replaced, you know, no harm, no foul. Well, on December 7th, Travis is back over at Lisa's house. After getting the tires replaced, there's a knock at the door. Travis bolts to the front door, swings it open. Nobody there. Well, you know, lesson learned. He runs out to his car. Guess what? All four tires slashed again. He has to have them replaced for a second time. The next morning on December 8th, 
At 8.52 a.m., Lisa opens up her email and she begins going through it and she has an email from John Doe. And it reads, you are a shameful whore. Your heavenly father must be deeply ashamed of your whoredoms you've committed with the insidious man. If you let him stay in your bed one more time or even sleep under the same roof as him, you'll be giving the appearance of evils. You're driving away the Holy Ghost and you're wasting your time. You're also compromising your salvation and breaking your baptismal covenants. Of all the commandments to break, committing acts of whoredom is one of the most displeasing in the eyes of the Lord. You cannot be ashamed enough of yourself. You are filthy and you need to repent and become clean in the eyes of God. Think about your future husband and how disrespectful, not only to yourself, but to him, as well as the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Is that what you want for yourself, your future, your salvation, and your posterity? Is resting on your choices and actions. You are a daughter of God and you have been a shameful example be thou clean, sin no more. Heavenly Father loves you and wants you to make the right choices. I know you are strong enough to choose the right. Your Father in Heaven is pulling for you. Don't ignore the prompting you receive because they are vital to your spiritual well-being. Lisa wasn't a fool. As hurtful as all these words were, she knew who exactly sent this, this email. It was Jody. It, I mean... When you are a person of faith and somebody tries to tell you that you, you know, you're portraying yourself as this very spiritual, very faithful person, but behind closed doors, you're, you know, you're breaking all these commandments and, and your baptism is a joke to you. When somebody brings that to light, brings to light your commitment to your faith, that hurts, especially for somebody like Lisa, who who is a very faithful person who, who follows the Mormon rules. You know, they don't, there's no sex, there's no caffeine, there's no tea, there's no soda, there's no beer. She is very committed to being a, a holy person. So even though she knows this is Jody, those words still cut deep. Weeks later, when she's at Travis's house, her tires end up being slashed as well. Jody Eris is becoming very dangerous. And Lisa, she's not so sure she's willing to sign on handling this. But despite it all, Travis talks her into it and he's starting to think, you know, Lisa may be the one. Maybe, maybe it's time I sit down and we talk about marriage. And when these two sit down and they talk about it, it, Lisa comes forth with her reservations. And instead of taking the next step in the two becoming engaged, they ended up ending their relationship. Throughout their entire relationship, Travis talked about his determination for self-improvement, for always striving to be the best he could in spite of where he came from. And Lisa loved this about him. And just because their relationship didn't work out didn't mean they couldn't be friends. But it did not mean that, that Travis couldn't be a part of her life. But she had to keep him at arm's length so she, you know, she didn't become hurt again. In December of 2007, Travis spent a month, an entire month, reflecting on how he can prove himself in the following year. He looked at improving his health. He wanted a slimmer waistline. Travis was not necessarily skinny and he wasn't necessarily overweight. 
he was a happy medium to me. I, I don't see that he needed to do a whole lot of adjusting. I, he could probably have used, you know, more cardio, good for your heart, you know, maybe some weightlifting, tightening up things, whatever. He, to me, he didn't look like he needed much. He also wanted to earn the six-figure PPL ring. Once you made six figures within the PPL marketing, you earned a special ring. He wanted to hit that. He wanted to become a published author in the next year. He wanted to succeed at real estate. And I hope this meant that he wanted to become a real estate agent because, like I said, he was gifted the salesmanship that he had. And this would have been a great way for him to make money. He also wanted to create multiple streams of income from his entrepreneurial endeavors. Yes, I said that wrong. Please don't, don't hang me. And he also, he wanted to get serious. He wanted to get married and start his family. New Year's Eve of 2007, Lisa made a special arrangement. In 2007, since hearing Tim McGraw's Live Like You Were Dying, he had skydived. He had climbed Rocky Mountains, but he had yet to ride a bull. Well, in front of Walmart in Apache Junction, there was a toy mechanical bull designed for kids to ride for a whole quarter. At 10.45 p.m., just an hour and 15 minutes until the new year was rang in, Travis mounted the toy bull and he held on to the plastic handle and rode that bull for a full eight seconds, completing his first set of goals after hearing, live like you were dying. When the clock struck midnight, he had completed these goals and he was ready to take on the ones he had set for 2008. Travis would never complete the goals he had for 2008. Crashing recession of 2008 caused Travis to take a hit to his finances even further. The housing bubble burst, layoffs began, banks and creditors were being burned left and right, and before making before this, making money with PPL came easy to Travis. He was that natural born salesman that I keep repeating. But with everyone holding on to their extra income with a tight fist, it made him making money with PPL harder to do. So what did Travis do? He ends up buying a Prius, which will save him money in gas. It's, it's probably got way better gas mileage than his BMW. He ends up selling the BMW to Jody because she had just lost her vehicle to a repossession after she could no longer make those payments. And in turn, she would make smaller payments to Travis that were much more manageable. This helped both of them out. Travis again refinanced the home. This is the second time. The first time he used to fund all the trips that they took to mark all these places off the list. And it also gave him a chance to put more money back towards the principal of the home loan. He rented out the uh, rooms that he had banked in the house to help him make the new mortgage payments. And Zachary Billings, another Mormon, had taken on one of the rooms. For $450 a month, he had access to the entire house except the room occupied by Travis. All of this started to bleed into that relationship with Lisa and again, I guess they had kind of tried to go back on, but they, they, they were done. They really were. They'd come to the end. Enforcing it wasn't going to do anything better. And they have this final break where they can't even be friends. Lisa, she has to go and she has to heal. And Travis, he needs time away. 
And in that time, he's going to realize, you know, maybe that wasn't the best choice. But for the both of them, they still had a ton of love for one another. This also gave Travis another opportunity because at church, he had started to kind of have an eye for another single woman. Her name was Mimi Hall, and she had caught his attention. She was 29, so just a year his junior, and she is the recent graduate from a college in Provo, Utah. He loved it. She was beautiful. She was smart, and this could, you know, be a perfect match and maybe potentially a perfect companion. In February of 2008, Travis asked Mimi out, and she said yes. Here's the thing with Travis and Mimi. Travis wanted Mimi to be it, to be his end game, as some people call it nowadays, that, that lingo. That's what he wanted. He, you know, he was tired of getting into a relationship and then it fizzle out. He wanted her to be the one, you know, he thought he had that with Lisa, but then he wasn't so sure. And with Mimi being able to catch his eye, you know, thing, he just, let's make this work. So he was kind of awkward. He oversold himself. Here's the thing. After meeting Mimi and asking her out and she's saying yes, Travis did something he hadn't done before. He had talked to Jody because the two liked to, to, to say they were friends, even though we know they weren't. They just had a toxic relationship. He tells Jody, I think Mimi's the one. The only problem is that because Travis was having a hard time being himself with her, she was not interested in Travis as he was in her. They're, they're, I mean, they're on two different levels. So they go on a date and Travis waits a whole week before he asks her out again. This time she declines. She tells him, you know, I'm seeing another Mormon man from church. You know, I appreciate the offer, but I I want to see where it goes with this guy. And Travis, he, he was like, okay, but he wasn't giving up on her just yet. And on leap day of 2008, that happened to be a leap year, he asked her out to go on a second date again. And this time her relationship with the Mormon man had gone nowhere. So she agreed, and the two went to the Phoenix Rock Gym where they rock climbed. It was awkward. Travis is overcompensated as he has no idea where he's really standing with Mimi. She's hard to read. He can't tell if she's having a great time, if she likes him. She, he's just, this is not his usual ball game, right? I mean, he usually doesn't have this kind of difficulty. When Travis got home from the date... There was Jody sleeping upstairs on a love sack. A love sack is just an oversized like beanbag kind of thing. They're kind of cool. I don't even know if they're still around. But there's Jody. And upstairs in Travis's home, he has like a little loft area. It's you could set it up as a den. Chris Watts and his wife had one too. It's weird that these two kind of mimic one another. But um that's where this sack was. So when he went upstairs, there's this open area and there's this beanbag and there's Jody, you know, a girl who's not supposed to be in his home and she's sleeping. And, you know, he wakes her up and Jody, she just plays cool. She's like, I was tired and I, I just wanted to lay down for a minute and I didn't mean to fall asleep. 
But Travis knows. We know. She was there waiting for him to get home from his date and kind of see where this is going. Because Travis had told her, Mimi's the one. He was on a date with Mimi. She needs to fill this out because um, she's seeing these bright yellow signs going, it's over. At this point, Travis's possessions, they're still disappearing from his home. I would say he probably has a very sticky finger made, but you know, who am I to know? In March of 2007, Jody and Travis went out for some breakfast. And it's at this point she tells Travis that she's planning to move back home to Wairika. There was nothing really for her in Mesa, which he told her before she moved, but she didn't listen. Her money problems, they were just getting worse. She wasn't the best at selling PPL like Travis has, or like Travis was. Waitressing, it only goes so far. You know, she said, you know, I got to move home with my grandparents. I need to replenish my savings. I need to get back on my feet. And Travis, he's thrilled. He, he thinks the distance between them would allow them to pursue different things. He has an opportunity to find a wife and to start a family without Jody being there and being a distraction. And hopefully this toxicity between the two would fizzle out and she would eventually move on with her life as well. There's hope. Thank goodness, right? This move is the first step in, into a possible end with them. Jody and Travis, at this point, they have no relationship outside of traveling and sex. That's all these two do. So this breakfast was a rare occasion for the two. And Jody later recognizes that, honestly, if you look at the bigger picture, there really wasn't anything left for either one of them. Jody would just spend the entire month of March planning and getting ready to move. But with the actual split of her and Travis, it's going to be a lot more difficult. Jody couldn't bring herself to break up with him after their trip to, to Disney and Anaheim when their relationship ended shortly after. So walking away and moving and putting that distance between them was twice as hard, probably 10 times as hard for her. She's still not ready to admit that their relationship's over, that there is nothing there between the two of them. You know, it's dead in the water. <laughs> the only thing you two are compatible at doing is having sex, really. Because, I mean, if you're not screwing each other, you're fighting. It's, it's just not there. As Travis begins to pursue Mimi even more, and, and he's not really getting a good read off of her, he doesn't know where she stands, he finds himself really starting to miss Lisa and the connection they had developed and the relationship that they had. It seemed to be a healthy one. And honestly, if as I look at this, Mimi's a beautiful girl. She's a sweet woman. She just, she, Travis was not for her and she was not for Travis. If I was going to pick anybody in their dating history and Travis's dating history, it would have been Lisa. They seem to have a great foundation. They seem to connect. They seem to have a lot of things in common. Yes, she was quite a bit younger than him, but, you know, age is just a number. But if I was going to pick out of his history of people he dated, Lisa would be the one I would see he is most likely to be the perfect companion for. However, he still pursued Mimi. He wanted that. He didn't want to be wrong about her, but he couldn't read her. He was awkward. 
things were not natural. He missed the the easiness that he had with Lisa and the connection that they had. And, you know, I would say Mimi probably realized that Travis was kind of a womanizer and that was not something she, she liked. Did someone fill her in on whether uh, on Travis's extensive dating life or the fact that he had been in trouble with the church and losing recommended temple? I don't know. I really don't know where Mimi stood. She is a very tough nut to crack. And, but in the end, I think they would have been great friends. Uh, I don't think they were meant to be partners. So, something that Travis was only admitting to himself and to those extremely close to him was he wanted to end things with Lisa really that second time where they had kind of broken up and then it seemed like they were going to veer back together and become another couple. And then in the new year, they, they were like, no, no, let's just call it quits. Really what had pushed Travis to make that decision was the fact that he saw Mimi at church and he really wanted to be able to pursue her. But now I made a boo-boo kind of thing, you know, he didn't want to say he was wrong. That's why he was still pursuing Mimi and missing Lisa didn't exactly say he was in the wrong or he didn't, you know what I mean? So there was a lot of self battle here and I'm not saying that if he could have picked one or the other things would have, the outcome would have been different. I think that if he would have thought a little bit clearer, he probably shouldn't have said anything to Jody. It was none of her business in the first place. But what do I know? I just, you look at these cases and you, you can see where you're like, maybe if you hadn't done this, you would still be here. And that's hard because you don't, you, as much as I love true crime, you don't want to see things in the way they do for some of these people. And for Travis, this is just brutal. It, you know, I had a hard time with the West Memphis Three and the more I dig into this case, the more I'm having a hard time with it because he didn't deserve it. He was just like every other guy in the world. He was a buffet who couldn't make up his mind and he liked to be with women. I mean, most, most men do. So having, having this internal self battle of Mimi or Lisa or Mimi or Lisa, Jody's not in the picture. If anybody has figured that out, <laughs> there's not that, she's not a third point in the triangle. There's just Travis, Mimi, and Lisa. Well, on March 31st, he was at a party and Lisa happened to be there as well. And his friend Taylor, somebody he was very close with, he texted off, dude, I've been missing Lisa lately and it's starting to get to me. And Taylor asked him, you know, how's Project Mimi going? And, and Travis is like, it's not. She has zero interest lately. I thought no action would be the best action. And so Taylor says, so what do you want? Do you want Lisa? And Travis says, I don't know. I know that I miss Lisa. I'm not sure what I want other than to not be lonely. The past couple of weeks, loneliness has gotten to me and it's very unusual for me. Travis admitted to his friend. On April 6th of 2008, Travis extended the olive branch and sent Lisa a message. She never responded. Jody, she's preparing to leave Mesa at this point. She has not moved yet. 
the entire month she got her crap together in March and prepared to make the move, but now the time has come. She rented a U-Haul truck. She loaded Travis's, or now her BMW, onto the back of the dolly. Everything's loaded. She takes off. In the side mirror, all she could see was smoke. An expensive whoopsie happened here. She left the car in drive, and this tore up the car and the drive shaft and stuff like that. It needed to be fixed before she could go any further. Well, she gave up her room that she was renting. She couldn't go to Wairika yet, so she needed somewhere to stay. Travis, being the nice person that he is, offered her a, a bed at his house while the car got fixed and she could go. Well, his hospitality uh, extended greatly compared to those of a hotel and most friends who offer a place. They just screwed the entire week. <laughs> at this point, at this point, I mean, I could give you the details, but I'm pretty sure somebody would come in and shut me off because it get nasty and raunchy. And honestly, I'm not going to tell you. Uh, nobody cares. Well, some of you may care, but I'm still not going to tell you. <laughs> Anyways, they end up having this week of sex fueled fun. Well, like their relationship is, it ended with a fight. And Jody recalls that as they were fighting, she decides she's leaving. She walks outside, gets in the U-Haul. Travis follows her outside, gives her the double bird just as she's pulling off from his house. That's how they ended things in Mesa. I would say that's a clean, clear, we're done, right? Travis is elated that Jody's leaving. She was going to be gone from his life, taking the drama and the pain and all this just chaos that she created with her. You know, other than the animalistic sex, he was going to miss that part of it, but whatever. After Jody left, Travis started a blog. This was something, this was a way for him to write things down to clear his head on whatever it is he was battling with. He never expected it to be something that became something. Does that mean a lot of people, when blogs were big, started a blog because they wanted to make money? Um, and and a there's still people out there that have a successful blog today. But not everybody who started it made money, just like in podcasting. Not everybody who starts a podcast makes money. A lot of podcasts will die within seven episodes. That's if you can make it past seven, generally, you have the gusto to make it further. I'm just taking it one week at a time, guys. I really am. But I mean, so it was a way for him to write his stuff down. People could read it if they wanted to, and people did. You can still get online. You can go pull up Travis's blog, and you can read what he had to say. Uh, he had some insights that were very good, uh, were, that made sense. Not necessarily good, but it made sense. So to say that he was anything close to being, in, you know, uneducated or unintelligent is far from the truth. He was very intelligent. He, he had common sense, which is the knowledge that you need to go and survive in the world. He had it. So after he started this blog and he's able to write down what he has to say, Jody, she's like his cheerleader in the comment section. You know, great job. This is one of my favorites. Crap like that. Well, 13 days following the very first post of Travis, his happened April 14th. 
Hers started April 27th. She had a blog. Oh, yeah. And guess what? Her topics would mimic Travis's. If Travis talked about uh, the uh, wanting marriage and, and, and starting a family, so did Jody. So, mm, she just really could not. She's, this is an addiction. This is an addiction that is far worse than I think any drug out there because most addicts end up harming themselves rather than others. This one's going to cause someone to harm somebody else. She can't quit Travis. She really can't. If he takes a step, she takes a step. If he scoots, she scoots. If he starts a blog, she starts a blog. She is right there, right behind him every step of the way. But here's the thing. Jody had gone to a PPL convention in Oklahoma City. She found a new man. Not someone she developed this dangerous infatuation with like she had with Travis, but maybe someone that could have helped her keep the mind, her mind off the fact that Travis didn't want her and her dream life of being his wife was literally going up in smoke. This man, Ryan Burns, was at a PPL convention with her in Oklahoma City in late April of 2008. Here's the thing. Ryan was becoming a rising star within PPL. He was selling upwards of $10,000 a month. His commission was coming out back. And want to know the biggest coincidence? He was inspired to sell PPL and motivated by one of PPL's favorite public speakers, Travis Alexander. Ryan was also a Mormon, but he was at, marked as an inactive in the church. And oddly enough, they kind of look alike. So I guess for Jody, this is her replacement, Travis. This is, this is second best, right? Every night around 10 p.m., Jody would lay down in her cramped up bedroom at her grandparents' house, and she would talk with Ryan. These two would have lengthy conversations. They had a lot in common, and a relationship with him could have been a very healthy one. If she would have let go of the of Travis and the relationship she wanted to have. Where Jody was starting to see some success in a relationship, Travis was running into a brick wall over and over and over with Mimi. They were set to have a third date, but she called last minute saying she was sick. So Travis did something super thoughtful and maybe even as a way to, you know, earn himself some brownie points. He dropped off a basket at Mimi's house on the porch. It was a get well basket. There was a couple books in there. There was some juice. There were different things to help make her feel better. And he didn't even stick around. He just dropped the basket off on her porch, texted her and let her know, you know, I left you a get well basket. And the two kind of had a small conversation, not very long, well, the next day at church, Mimi approaches Travis and she, she wants to talk to him after church. Travis admits to her that he's finding it hard to be himself around her. And Mimi tells him, you know, she reassures him, just be you and, and time will tell us what this is. Jody was nowhere close to being gone from Travis's life at this point. He's struggling with Mimi. She's got this relationship. There's a few hundred miles between the two. These two are still talking. They're still fighting. They're still having phone sex. They're still 
they, mm, he berates her so bad sometimes with some of the things he says to her. One of the things just really irks me. He says, you know, you're the ultimate slut in bed. I, obviously, because if he says he wants to try it, Jody's like, okay, let's do it. You know, she does not know the word no when it comes to Travis. And he's okay with taking advantage of that. So these two, they're still doing their toxic routine. And Jody will later tell detectives and in court that with this move and with the distance, Travis only got meaner to her. And I could see that. He, he thought her moving away, putting that distance between them, it would really kind of just completely sever the relationship they had. But neither one of them could quit the sexual relationship that they had. There was a level of attraction there that kept them coming back to each other to satisfy that sexual urge that they had. Well, in May of 2008, Travis welcomes in another roommate named Enrique Cortez. Someone Travis has met at church. They're not, you know, they haven't been friends for a long time. It's a mutual acquaintance. You know, he needed a room. Travis had a room. And with this, Travis starts to see his finances start going in the other direction. We're starting to go into the positive. Uh, he's making mortgage. He's got a, some great roommates. And it's looking good. PPL could start to boost back up soon. Well, Travis had earned a trip to Cancun through PPL. And it was an unsaid, unspoken, that Jody would be his companion for the trip. Most people expected that. But he needed to submit a name for the airline ticket by a certain time. He had yet to submit Jody's name. Well, as he and Mimi are kind of hanging out and kind of talking, he asked her, you know, do you want to go to Cancun with me? I have this trip. We'll have separate rooms. You know, there's not going to be any pressure. And she says yes. Jody finds out about this. And when I told you before, we looked at this, their travel, that, that was... Jody's way to continue to have a hold on Travis. As long as they were crossing off the, these places uh, from their list, they still had that connection, right? I said this about their trip going to Albuquerque to the Hot Air Balloon Festival. They could be in the most awful positions with one another, just completely downright angry at one another. And if a trip was coming, they they traveled together. They had a great time. This is the first time that Travis says, you know what, Jody, I'm not taking you. But he does not tell her it's Mimi. He tells her something else. He says he owes his friend a favor, so he's taking their babysitter. Okay. Well, Mimi's not the babysitter. <laughs> Whatever. But here's the thing about this trip to Cancun. Cancun is a high resort. It's a high travel. It's a high vacation spot. But it's very close to a couple ruins, especially the Mayan ruins, which was listed in A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. It was part of their list. And he's taking somewhere else, which means he's going to check off a place and it's not going to be with Jody. And, and could you say... This is the, the straw that broke the camel's back. 
Yes, most certainly. Her claws are being pulled out of him completely. And she's, she no longer lives there. She no longer can keep tabs on him. They're not dating. The only time these two are really talking civil to one another is when they're debating each other about their sexual fantasies and being disgusting and raunchy. And, but they still had the travel. They still had the list, but not anymore. So it's the final cut to sever their lives. And for Jody, I would say this was the moment she decided that if she couldn't have Travis, then nobody could. Jody's friend Ryan had been asking her to come visit him in Salt Lake City. And just so happens that there was a PPL business briefing happening in June of 2008. And Jody finally says, you know what? Yeah, I'll come see you. And I'm gonna, we'll go to the briefing together. It'll be a couple of days together and we'll really kind of get to know each other a little bit more. I'm going to start a timeline here. This is a fast moving timeline. There's not a lot for us to break down. We can talk about things and I can go to and blue in the face. You know I can. However, this part of this timeline goes quickly and really honestly, there's not a lot to debate here. Okay, so I'm not going to make it long-winded. On May 15th of 2008, Mimi calls Travis. They've already agreed that they're going to Cancun. Travis has already submitted her name for the other ticket. And she tells Travis she thinks it would be best if they just remained friends. And she told him, you know, I'll understand if you don't want to take me to Cancun and there's somebody else. But Travis says, no, I invited you. I would love for you to go. Is this a chance for Travis to have a little bit of hope that this relationship could still happen? Yeah. But I don't see him being a petty person. I don't be like, well, you don't like me? Well, you're not going to Cancun. Most people would, but I, I, I don't see him being that way. Um, I just don't. So Mimi was still slated to be his companion on the trip. On May 18th, Travis wrote his last blog entry titled, Why I Want to Marry a Gold Digger. This is not what you think it is. <laughs> the title is completely misleading. He doesn't technically want some woman who only wants him for his money. He's talking about his personal quest to find his eternal companion. On May 21st, Travis reaches out to Lisa again. She didn't answer, so he leaves a voicemail and she doesn't call him back. On May 24th, Travis hosts his last UFC party. This is something Travis has done for just about every pay-per-view UFC fight. And it was something he was really known for. This would be his last. On May 26th, Travis and Jody got into another one of their arguments, a vicious one, as this is labeled, where he repeatedly called her a sociopath, evil, slut, a whore, and said his life was worse after meeting her. On May 28th, just two days following this fight, in Wairika, around 3.30 p.m., Jody's grandfather come home and his house has been broken into. As he goes through the home, the only thing he can find missing of his own 
is the 25 caliber handgun, not the rifles that were located in the gun cabinet, nor the money sitting on his dresser, or the Blu-ray player, which was in the living room. Jody comes home as the police are investigating the break-in, and they ask her if she had anything missing, and she says she had $30 on her dresser. And she gets a little frantic. She's like, I can't find my laptop. And she ends up finding it was buried underneath some clothing. Again, not taken. The house isn't, you know, in a disarray like a normal burglary would be. It's the back door has been pried open and his gun's missing. Two and two are going to equal four here, guys. You know who did this. On May 28th, Travis also decides to call Lisa yet again, and this time for whatever reason, when she saw his number and name flash on her phone, she decides to pick it up. They have a 45-minute phone call, and afterwards, Travis is far more optimistic in the outlook following this conversation. Mimi has said she really kind of wants to be friends, and now Travis needs to avert his energy from dating Mimi to possibly getting Lisa back. This is somebody he misses. This is somebody he had a real connection with. And so his optimism, it, it grew a hundred times. Jody begins to make plans to go to Salt Lake, starting with her ex-boyfriend, Daryl Brewer. She calls him and needs a favor. She also makes a reservation for a rental car with budget and she specifically asked for a car that's not flashy. When she goes to pick up the car, it was a candy apple red car and she was not taking it. She went to the manager and eventually was handed the keys to a cream colored Ford Focus that she would drive out of Redding, California. On June 2nd, Jody got in the rental car. It was packed. She was ready to go. She was on her way to Utah. The night before she went on the road, Jody stayed up with Travis and she called him four times with their longest conversation lasting a few minutes. Travis called her twice with that longest phone call lasting over an hour. During these calls, Jody says she mentioned her trip to Utah in which Travis encouraged her to come to Mesa. She declines the invitation, according to Jody. Jody drives three hours to Lodi, and at 4.03 p.m., she calls Travis, followed by a second only an hour and a half later. At 7.32, she has dinner at a McDonald's, and an hour later, she fills up the car at a Valero, and then she drives to Santa Cruz, which is near Monterey Bay, where she meets up with her ex-boyfriend, Matthew McCartney, and his roommate. The three go out to a restaurant and have appetizers and spend the night singing away at the karaoke bar. Afterwards, she goes home with Matt and his roommate where she spends the night sleeping on the floor. On June 3rd, Jody stops at Daryl's apartment and joins him and his son for breakfast. There, she checks her email and MySpace page from Daryl's computer. Then she claims her favor. She gets two red five-gallon gas cans from Daryl, and he asks her, why do you need them? And at first, she doesn't answer. It's just silence. And then she spurts out. She's going on a long trip, and she may need them, at which point she mentions Mesa. At 10 a.m., she stops at Washington Mutual 
in Monterey and makes several bank deposits totaling $800. At 12.57, she calls Travis. At 1.51, she calls Travis again. At 3.22, Jody goes to a Monterey Walmart where she makes a purchase of face wash, sunscreen, and another gas can. She then proceeds to drive six hours to L.A. that afternoon. On the way, she calls Daryl's sister, but gets no answer. Supposedly, the reason for her trip to L.A. is to see Daryl's sister and her brand new baby, but since she didn't answer her phone, this does not occur. Jody calls Ryan while she's in L.A., and she tells him she's on her way. She's about 12 hours out. He cautions her to be careful, and she promises to him to pull over and sleep if she gets tired. At 8.16 p.m., she, Jody calls Travis. The call was short, lasting two minutes. At 8.31, she makes a purchase at CVS for $6.37. At 8.34, Jody calls Travis, and then she stops for a strawberry frappuccino. At 8.42, Jody stops. She makes two purchases at a convenience store, both for gas. One for filling up the car, the other for filling up the gas cans. Jody gets into her car and turns her cell phone off. On June 4th of 2008, Travis goes downstairs early in the morning and he meets with his roommates in the kitchen as they're preparing to leave for work. At this point, he tells them, you know, that he's only been asleep for about 45 minutes and he's exhausted. Once his roommates leave for work, Travis goes back up to bed and goes back to sleep. At noon, he wakes up and sees a text from Chris and Skye. They are already in Cancun waiting on him. Travis sends a text back and then he dozes back off again for another hour. At 1 p.m., Travis wakes up, goes and does some work around the house, and then he decides he's going to clean the floors in the kitchen and he takes the bar stools and he stacks them onto the couch. This is where they are going to be found when his roommates come home that evening. At 4.19, Travis checks his email on his laptop in the den. At 5.22 p.m., Travis took a shower in his master bath. Travis was stabbed at least 27 times the wounds scattering from his back to his scalp and neck. His throat was cut ear to ear, severing his airway, right jugular vein, and carotid artery. He was shot in the right forehead just above his eyebrow, and the bullet never exited the body, finding its resting place in his left cheek after bouncing around in his head like a pinball. Finally, he was left in the master shower to rot for five days. Before Mimi Hall became concerned after not hearing from him and they were scheduled to fly out to Cancun on June 10th. At 10 p.m. on June 9th, Mimi Hall went to Travis's home on East Queensboro Avenue and rang the doorbell. She had Michelle Lowry and Dallin Forrest there and a call in to Taylor Surreal, Travis's close friend. None of them had heard from Travis. His roommates were in the home, and they had been for every day of those five days. The smell of death slowly seeped from the master bedroom into the living space of the others. No one questioned the smell until the door opened to the visitors there to check on their friend. Massive bloodstains covered the carpet in the master bedroom. 
Blood smeared the walls on the way to the master bath. Blood splatter painted the walls and mirror in the bathroom, and Travis's severely decaying body covered the floor of the shower. Obvious signs of trauma forced his friend, Dallin, out of the room and Mimi to pick up the phone and call 911. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we unravel the relationship of Jody and Travis. It doesn't take a genius to see that these two were never meant to be for one another. One eventually coming to terms with that and the other forcing fate in her direction. When that didn't work out, she made sure that if she couldn't have him, no one could. Join me next week as we dive into the trial that rocked Mesa, Arizona and left the rest of the world in shock with each and every detail that came to light. From the interrogation room where Jody serenaded the walls to Amazing Grace was held up and in a boring font, only one word was printed, Survivor. This was to bring recognition to the defendant and what she went through having Travis in her life. As always, I leave you with one last line. You can't force love. You can't control how someone else feels. You just have to enjoy it while it lasts and hope the ride doesn't end. Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>